Let's pray and get started. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to come together this morning. Um, Just thank you for the body of Christ here at Crossway, the work that you are doing. Pray that you would, um, through the teaching and the preaching of your word this morning, that you would grow our knowledge of you and uh, what you have accomplished on our behalf. Pray that it would grow our awe of you, our love for you, and our desire to live our lives in order to please and glorify you. And pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so um, last week, uh, Fu was teaching. We saw Jesus in the garden agonizing over what was about to happen to him. Um, his hour now has finally come. Uh, evil descends on the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas, his longtime companion and disciple, has agreed to sell him out. And Judas is accompanied by soldiers, Pharisees, and a collection of other haters who are armed and ready to take Jesus into custody. And Jesus referred to this event earlier in Mark 14, 27. Uh, he said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, which was a quote from the prophecy of Zechariah 13, 7. And he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So this prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus is arrested. Disciples all run away. And, uh, you know, often we criticize the disciples for their lack of faithfulness, their lack of um, loyalty to Christ. But truth is, probably, if we were in that same situation, we would have done exactly the same thing. We would have run away. Anyway, Jesus is then uh, brought before an illegal court uh, made up of priests, elders, and scribes. And it was illegal because under Jewish law, you couldn't have court at night, okay, under the cover of darkness. That was forbidden. So the court is illegal, the judges, the jury, and the prosecution are all prejudiced against him, and they're all corrupt um, because of sin. They bring false witnesses to accuse him, and then uh, the high priest asks Jesus directly, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In other words, are you the Son of God? Um, Jesus doesn't hesitate, but he responds, I am. And then he identifies himself as the son of man from Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, 9 through 28. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the Jews understood this to be a clear claim to deity. Basically, he's claiming to be God and the Messiah. And that's why the chief priest tears his robes and accuses Jesus of blasphemy. Then all the corrupt court officials condemn him, uh, condemn him to death. They begin to spit on him, beat him, and mock him. And while all this is happening, Peter is nearby in the courtyard, and he's actually close enough to see Jesus, see what's happening, and Jesus can see him as well. And Peter's then confronted by the servant girl. We all know this story. She questions whether or not he was a follower of Jesus. And, of course, he denies it. He denies it once, twice, and then three times. 
when the rooster crows as predicted by Jesus. And then, this uh, is not in Mark, but in the account that Luke records in his gospel, uh, there's another detail that's left out in Mark's account. <clears throat> Peter denies Jesus the third time in Luke. Um, this is in Luke 22, 61, and 62. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And I don't think <clears throat> we can even begin to imagine how horrible um, was the guilt and self-condemnation that Peter must have felt at that moment. Jesus looked at him in the eye immediately after he had denied him three times. Peter had given up everything to follow Jesus. He spent three years with him, daily, with Jesus. And now, he's denied him three times. Jesus turns, looks him in the eye. He must have been absolutely crushed. And he rushes out into the darkness, trying to get away. Weeping over his lack of courage, his lack of loyalty, his lack of love for Christ. But his, these tears that he sheds, the grief that he expresses is not just emotional. His weeping is true grief over his sin. And it is followed by true repentance. And we know that because <clears throat> eventually he is restored uh, to faith and fellowship with Christ and in fact, Peter becomes this bold evangelist for Christ and one of the first and primary leaders in the early church. <clears throat> but terrible moment for Peter. So now uh, the sun is coming up and the chief priests along uh, with the Sanhedrin after having spit on Jesus. They blindfold him, they beat him, they mock him, and now he's tied up and handed over to Pilate with a plan to ensure that Jesus will be executed. And this all leads to his death on the cross. Now I'm going to read uh, the account <clears throat> in Mark, uh, starting in uh, chapter 15. It will be chapter 15, verses 1 through 39. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, follow along. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. <clears throat> now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate began, um, sorry, and Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the, tr let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So, the sinless Savior suffering all this indignity, pain, sorrow and death uh, certainly um, evokes an emotional response from us, but how his death affects us emotionally is not the point. What is of supreme importance <clears throat> is not how we're affected emotionally by the crucifixion, by the death of the Savior, but what was accomplished on the cross. That's the whole point of the gospel. And there's been a lot of hymns written uh, about this. Um, there's a hymn, though, that sums up the theology of the cross and what was accomplished. Uh, it was written in the mid-1800s by a guy named Philip Bliss called Man of Sorrows. So I just want to read um, 
three of the verses from uh, that hymn, which is a summary of the theology of the cross. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was He, sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Now, it's possible that Bliss was meditating on Mark uh, chapters 14 and 15 and the other gospel accounts when he wrote those words and, um, and considering what Christ had accomplished. Bearing shame, scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That is the heart of the gospel. So from the moment that Jesus was betrayed by Judas until he died on the cross, he was continually put to shame. Shamefully betrayed by a kiss of one of his own disciples. And that was just the beginning. The cross itself was the greatest shame. The uh, you know, R- Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be crucified, no matter what they had done. There's uh, an account by a Roman orator named Cicero, who you may have heard of. He said that the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. And that was because crucifixion was a systematic, brutal way of exposing and shaming a person publicly. I don't don't know if you understand, because in the pictures that we see of crucifixion, uh, people crucified are always partly closed. That was not the case. You're crucified? You were crucified naked for everyone to see. So... Jesus suffered this shame for up to 20 hours before he died, hanging naked on a cross. Hebrews 12, 2 speaks about this, says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What this means is that even though the shame was horrible, um, it was virtually unbearable, and it was experienced by Christ in a way that we could never experience it because he was sinless. Certainly, we are not. Um, The shame was horrific. When it says that he despised the shame, that means he considered it of no consequence because of the magnitude of, of the joy and the glory that was beyond and through the cross. That's what enabled him to despise it, to consider it of no consequence because of what would be accomplished. So the shame that Christ experienced was 
uh, and was subjected to uh, was a clear fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. <clears throat> and throughout this ordeal that uh, Jesus was subjected to, um, he says very little. Um, he absorbs all the shame into himself silently. Shame that he didn't deserve. Shame that um, was rightly intended for us. <clears throat> and he does this from one experience of shame to another. He's led before the high priest. And he's shamed by the religious leaders who attack his reputation, his integrity. Uh, they use false witnesses to lie about him. But he remains silent. And he absorbs that shame as though he was the liar. And then after being condemned by the religious leaders, they heap additional shame on him by spitting on him. I don't know if you've ever had somebody spit on you. I had that happen to me a number of times when I was a cop. And it is, it's disgusting and it is shameful. It is something that you, you don't want to experience. And for them to do that to Christ again, is, is beyond what we can experience because this is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He was God in the flesh and his creation. People that he came to save are spitting on him. Anyway, they, they cover his face, they hit him, they mock him by demanding that he prophesy and identify his <clears throat> accusers, identify who struck him. Soldiers were also beating him and next, he's led before Pilate. Well, Pilate is weak, and he's being manipulated by the religious leaders, <clears throat> manipulated into executing Jesus. Well, Pilate, he tries to avoid it uh, because he knows that Jesus is innocent, and he appeals um, to the people, appeals to this Passover custom of releasing a prisoner <clears throat> as, as an act of mercy, but that backfires, and they demand Barabbas. So then Pilate literally washes his hands of the affair. Next, Jesus is taken away and scourged. <clears throat> and uh, a scourge was a type of whip. It had long uh, leather thongs, and embedded in those thongs were bits of um, bone, metal, shell. And uh, the scourge would literally rip the flesh off of a person's body, and it would shred muscle tissue. And I, I don't recommend seeing uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, but if anything, that, that, that film um, gives at least as close to a depiction of what the scourging was actually like. It's brutal, uh, to the point that most people would die from scourging, from loss of blood, and from shock. Uh, it would certainly humiliate uh, a person because it was done, again, like crucifixion, naked. Okay? They stripped everything off the individual before they began to scourge them, and it would weaken uh, a person dramatically, even if they survived. But <clears throat> death from scourging um, 
horrible as it was, was actually preferable to death on a cross where you're exposed naked and you die slowly from asphyxiation, from suffocation. That's what happens in crucifixion. So this, this episode with the uh, Roman soldiers is one of those instances um, in Scripture where we tend to read over it, over it without much thought, like we do with so many of the narratives um, about Jesus' life. But I do want to think a little bit more deeply about this, focus in on it a little bit more. Jesus is he's handed over to the soldiers, uh, and they're going to crucify him. But first, he's taken inside uh, their headquarters. And I'm not sure the scourging takes place before that happens or after or somewhere in, in, in that timeline. But he's taken into the barracks or into the headquarters um, away from his own people. So now he's surrounded by a whole battalion of Roman soldiers and a battalion of somewhere between 200 and 600 people. And again, when we see depictions of this in movies, there's like four or five guys, you know. That wasn't the case. He was surrounded by anywhere from 200 to 600 soldiers. And these were the most brutal, the most well-disciplined soldiers in the world at that time. So here are these three, four, five hundred soldiers surrounding him, mocking him, shaming him, and brutalizing him. He stands before them in his purple robe, robe, which was the color of kingship. Again, this is done to mock him. They, they force his crown of thorns down on his head. <clears throat> and again, the thorns that, on these, uh, that they used were generally, the thorns were like that long, okay? Several inches long, not little like rosebush thorns. And sufficient that they would, when they pushed this down on his skull, it would tear through the flesh all the way to the bone of his skull. And then they mock him, chanting, Hail, the king of the Jews. They hit him uh, about the head with a reed, and they again begin to spit on him. They kneel down before him in mock worship, and they strip him completely naked again, naked before all these violent and perverse mockers, these soldiers. And this stripping naked again will happen um, when he's crucified. He's dehumanized by these men, and one commentator calls it a form of gang rape. He's humiliated and dehumanized, and this happens to the one who is truly and fully human, and he goes through this so that we can be made truly human again. Um, this is all happening to, to one who is without sin, without guilt. It's happening to the Savior, to the one who came to offer forgiveness, to offer rest, to offer comfort to these people who are suffering under sin. And instead, they shame him and they beat him these people who needed him the most. <clears throat> Sinclair Ferguson says, this was the dreaded wine he had seen in the cup that his father pressed into his hands in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
must have seemed as if ever so slowly, Psalm 23 was beginning to run in reverse gear. Jesus now lacked everything. There was nowhere for his soul to graze. Soon, in the valley of the shadow of death, evil would seem to reign. There would be no comfort for him in God. Yes, a table would be spread in the presence of his enemies, but the only object on it would be this cup of dereliction and distress. Religious men's spittle anointed his head. No goodness, no mercy is shown here. In utter aloneness, he would soon feel cast out from the house of the Lord. Man. Now, <clears throat> in spite of this, Jesus had hope, and he was able to endure because he knew this was all fulfilling the Scripture and the will of the Father, that there would be victory, there would be joy, there would be glory after the shame and the suffering. Isaiah 50, uh, 5 and 6 says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But before that can happen, before this exaltation, uh, the very opposite has to take place. And that is in Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You couldn't even recognize him as human. He was so deformed and beaten and bruised and swollen and shredded from the whipping. One day every knee would bow to Jesus. One day every tongue would confess. But before that, he had to be marred beyond human semblance. Damaged and deformed, beaten, scourged. He doesn't even appear to be human that was the purpose of this brutality. It was to strip him of his humanity, to demean him, to shame him, dehumanize him. But that's still not the end of the suffering that he will experience. After being shamed, after being mocked, after being spit on, beaten, scourged to a bloody, unrecognizable form, the soldiers place the cross beam on his shoulders, uh, the beam that he will ultimately be nailed to. And he makes his long journey up to Calvary, to Golgotha. And there is a brief respite when Simon uh, is recruited to carry the beam for him the rest of the way because he's so weakened. And they arrive at Golgotha. This is a place of execution by crucifixion that was chosen uh, in order to uh, increase the impact of the shame of the event because it gave people passing by an opportunity to continue to further uh, mock and shame him. Mark 15, 29 says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So people are, are there observing him, going by, making fun of him, mocking him the whole time. Anyway, the Roman soldiers that will crucify him, they offer him wine. 
and that was meant to dull the pain, but he declines it, and then they strip him naked again. Uh, and not stripped naked in the confines of the ro- soldier's barracks. Uh, now he's out on this hill, fully exposed uh, to everyone passing by from Jerusalem, uh, and the soldiers do their evil work. They nail him to the cross, naked to the cross. They crucify him. And he will die naked on a cross, shamefully exposed. And I'm going to quote Ferguson again. He says, he is the second man, the last Adam, without clothing to hide him from the shame of the cross. Now the last vestiges of the common grace of life have been torn away from him. No one sees yet what the gospel writers would later see. He is unclothed to bear our sin that we might be clothed with his righteousness. Then the mocking begins again as everyone from religious leaders to common people passing by, even those who are crucified with him, begin to mock him. And this is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, 6 through 8, and 12 through 18. It says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Incredible evil, but it's a fulfillment of God's perfect plan and will to save the elect. And then darkness falls over this entire scene. And in the darkness, God brings about the promise that he made to Abraham, the promise to bless all people through him, and that is through Christ. Does this through the sacrificial death of Christ. And then Jesus cries out, Sensing um, his God forsakenness, Eloi, Eloi, Lema, Sabachthani. And he's not crying out for Elijah as some um, who hear him think he is. But they use this as a final opportunity to mock him. And they say, Get him a drink. Maybe he'll last a little bit longer and let's see if Elijah comes to rescue him. But John the Baptist had actually already fulfilled the role of Elijah, calling people to repentance. But uh, most refused, and they continued in rebellion and unbelief and in this crucifixion and mockery of the Savior. Now, when you consider the way that Jesus was mocked, there's actually three aspects to that mockery. First, 
Jesus is mocked as a prophet. Um, he said he would rebuild the temple in three days. Doesn't look like that's going to happen. So, so much for Jesus as a prophet. So, mocked as a prophet. He's also mocked as a priest. Uh, he said he would save others, but he can't even save himself. And then he's mocked as a king. Aside from the label that's nailed to the cross above his head, king of the Jews, they mockingly challenge him to show his power as king and come down from the cross. Cross. So he's mocked in all of the offices that he fulfills as our mediator. Mocked as a prophet, mocked as a priest, mocked as a king. And in fact, he is all of those things. But there's still more to the story. Uh, the fact is these gospel accounts are not uh, just biographies recording the events of a significant individual, the most significant individual in history. They're more like sermons because they carry an important message, the most important message. Uh, and the record of the life of Christ is the meaning of his life. It's the message of the gospel, uh, the good news. Jesus is on trial before the highest court of the purest religion in the world, but that court and that religion has been corrupted by sin, so even though he's innocent, he's condemned. He's also standing before the most well-developed justice system in the ancient world, and here he's also condemned, but he's clearly innocent, okay? Even the very people who condemn Jesus, Pilate in particular, acknowledges his innocence. And what was it that he was accused of? Okay, first of all, there's a religious charge that he's a blasphemer. Okay, makes himself out to be the son of God. So he has to be condemned. <clears throat> he's going to be condemned by God for making that claim. He deserves death. And then there's the civil charge that he's guilty of treason against Caesar because he makes himself out to be a king. That also deserves death. But Jesus isn't guilty of blasphemy. Blasphemy. Because he is the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. And he's certainly not guilty of treason because even Pilate acknowledges that there's nothing worthy of death in Jesus. Yet, Pilate has him scourged and crucified. So, make sure you get this because, again, it goes to the heart of the gospel. Jesus is charged with blasphemy, but he's innocent. He's charged with treason, but he's innocent. He is clearly and absolutely innocent of all the charges, so why is he crucified? He's treated as guilty when he's totally without guilt. And it was summarized in that hymn that I referenced earlier. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. That's why he's condemned. So, these are the charges that we're guilty of. You get that? All sinners are guilty of blasphemy. All sinners are guilty of treason. That is the nature uh, of our sins. Crimes against God. And they're crimes that we've all committed. We're guilty of blasphemy because we've made ourselves to be God and the center of the universe. We've taken God off the throne, and we put ourselves on the throne. And we make God in our image instead of the other way around, or we make God into a God that we're comfortable with, and that's blasphemy. We're also guilty of treason in that we've rebelled 
uh, against God's rightful authority over us. I want my will to be done rather than God's will, and that's treason. And that's the backstory of the gospel narratives. Jesus is not guilty. Jesus is without sin, and yet he's being mocked, beaten, abused, and crucified for his own sins of blasphemy and treason. He's not being punished for those because he has no guilt. He's sinless. He's innocent. He's being crucified for us. I think we all understand that. He's dying under God's judgment in our place. And that's clearly explained in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become in him the righteousness of God. The son of God loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. And he was made a curse for us that all the blessings of God's grace might flow into our lives, Galatians 3.13. Jesus took my place. He took our place. He died for our sins. And Isaiah uh, foresaw that and he understood this, even though he didn't know the exact timing or exactly who that sin bearer would be. Uh, but we see it in Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus bore our sins. And this also explains why he did it silently. It wasn't the silence of guilt and shame because he had none. He was guiltless. It is the silence of willingness to accept those charges of blasphemy and treason in my place, in our place. In our place condemned he stood. So in the crucifixion of Jesus, <clears throat> he suffered shame that we deserve. He suffered condemnation and judgment against sin that we deserve. That's not the end of the story. Then when Jesus was crucified this Another amazing thing happens. When he died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and this was the action of God, not man, top to bottom. The curtain in the temple <clears throat> uh, separated the holy of holies. It hid from human view and access the place uh, that represented the presence of God. <clears throat> it was the earthly throne room of God. And only once a year would the high priest be allowed to pass into the Holy of Holies carrying sacrificial blood. But now, uh, a greater sacrifice has taken place. The sacrifice of God's own Son uh, has been made. And that was sufficient to atone for the sins of everyone who will trust in Him and His sacrifice on the cross. So now the Father has torn that veil, separating Him from sinners, barring them from his presence. So now, through faith in the sacrifice of the Son, our sins are forgiven, we're made righteous, we are welcomed into the presence of God, adopted into his family, we are made 
his children and love as his children. And just to finish it off with a refrain from that um, hymn again, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's the crucifixion. Any questions? But you only have five minutes. Time's up. Sorry. <laughs> Seriously, any questions? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Ferguson makes that point in his book, I just didn't drill down on it, but it's an interesting point. Yeah. Anybody else? All right, you're dismissed. <laughs>